Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 3rd edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal rejected an overtime class action filed by former claims examiners against a TPA. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Kazar versus TriStar Risk Management. TriStar's normal work schedule for claims examiners was seven and a half hours per day. But TriStar also offered alternative work schedules that allowed claims examiners to work extra hours per day in exchange for receiving every other Monday or Friday off. Most claims examiners elected to work under one of TriStar's alternative work schedules. In February 2014, two former examiners filed a class action against TriStar, alleging it misclassified them and other similarly situated claims examiners as exempt from California's overtime laws. According to these plaintiffs, TriStar required its claims examiners to work more than 8 hours a day and 40 hours per work week but paid no overtime based on the exempt classification it applied to its claims examiners. In November 2014, these plaintiffs filed a motion to certify a class composed of all individuals who are or previously were employed by TriStar as claims examiners in its workers' compensation division. The trial court denied the motion because it found the plaintiffs failed to present substantial evidence establishing that their claims were typical of the class or that there were common issues of law or fact. And the Court of Appeal affirmed the denial in the unpublished case. The plaintiffs must demonstrate the existence of an ascertainable class and a well-defined community of interest as well as substantial benefits that justify proceeding as a class superior to the alternatives. To satisfy the commonality requirement for class certification, plaintiffs were required to show their liability theory could be established on a class-wide basis through common proof. Typically, in overtime claims, plaintiffs show this by presenting evidence of an employer policy or practice that generally required the class members to work overtime. In this case, the plaintiffs presented no evidence of such policy or practice. Healthcare companies, workers' compensation administrators, and even law firms who maintain confidential health data on litigated cases should take notice of this civil settlement. Anthem is on the cusp of having to make the biggest payout in U.S. history for a data breach. The $115 million proposed settlement reflects just how valuable patient records and personal information have become. There have been bigger breaches, but this one is unique because of the types of the records taken. Almost 80 million records were exposed in the 2015 breach, revealing names, birth dates, social security numbers, and other information. This information is particularly vulnerable to identity theft and, thus, one of the reasons why the settlement was so large. Target and Home Depot, two companies that suffered well-documented data breaches during the past couple of years, each paid less than a fifth of what Anthem is now expected to pay. 
The Anthem settlement must still be approved by the U.S. District Court in California. Still, the Anthem settlement may not capture all of the company's total exposure related to the breach. There's still the initial forensic analysis, notification of the people whose information was breached, and possible reputational damage to account for. Experts say it has now become vital that everyone, from the smallest physician's office to the largest health insurer, have some cyber awareness in place and take appropriate measures to mitigate risk. The Anthem breach happened because an employee opened a phishing email that it took almost an entire year for Anthem to notice anything was wrong. And now our crime report. Daniel J. Rush pleaded guilty in federal court to three felony counts, receiving an illegal payment as a union employee, honest services fraud, and conspiracy to commit structuring and money laundering. 56-year-old Rush was employed by the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union as the organizing coordinator for the Medical Cannabis and Hemp Division. Rush admitted he violated the Taft-Hartley Act and also admitted he committed honest services wire fraud with the intent to deprive the union of its right to his honest services. He admitted he conspired with 55-year-old workers' compensation attorney Mark Turbeek of Berkeley, California, to launder money and to evade reporting requirements in an effort to conceal the source of the money. The FBI and the IRS raided Turbeek's office in 2015, and since then he has been cooperating with investigators. The sworn affidavit signed by an FBI special agent said that Tarbik admitted to the FBI that he had been paying kickbacks to Rush for sending Turbik legal work since 2004. Rush encouraged Turbik to acquire a workers' compensation law practice to litigate cases referred by the Instituto Liberal de la Raza. In exchange, Tarbik gave Rush a credit card associated with his law firm and paid it off routinely. Turbik also allegedly agreed to share legal fees with Rush, derived from Turbik's clients seeking permits to operate cannabis dispensaries in California, Nevada, and elsewhere. For his part in the scheme, Turbik was charged with one count of making an illegal payment to a union employee and one count of willful violation of anti-structuring regulations. He pleaded guilty to both counts. Turbik is scheduled to be sentenced this August, and Rush will be sentenced on October 2nd. Rush is looking at the possibility of 30 years in prison, as well as a fine, but is currently free on $100,000 bail. State bar records reflect that Turbik remains an active, unrestricted member of the bar at this time. 52-year-old Darren Sean Wilson, the owner of American Blacktop and the Maverick Company, pleaded guilty to insurance fraud with a sentencing enhancement for aggravated white-collar crime exceeding $500,000. And after the Newport Beach business owner finished paying $1.7 million in restitution, an Orange County judge lowered his sentence from five years to a year in jail. He will apply for home confinement and also be placed on three years of probation. 
When he was charged, prosecutors alleged the case was a $5.6 million insurance fraud and tax evasion scheme, and he was also accused of failing to pay $384,000 in taxes. The fraud came to light when a worker fell 12 feet from a ladder and attempted to file a workers' compensation claim. And in regulatory news, a new report published by the RAND Corporation focuses on one particular form of workers' compensation fraud, the intentional manipulation of rules and procedures by providers, particularly those delivering health care services and supplies. The report finds that advanced analytics techniques that social welfare programs use for detecting fraud have had generally favorable results and that these techniques offer California workers' compensation similar promise. The report recommends that the California Department of Industrial Relations take immediate steps to incorporate the use of data analytics into its routine fraud detection work. Shortcomings on how data are currently collected and accessed should not prevent the Department of Industrial Relations from utilizing these tools. Post-employment claims have a strong likelihood of claim denial and liens that follow are concentrated in certain locations and with certain providers. Lien volume and claim value in denied post-employment claims would be reduced if medical care were subjected to the cost controls available in non-denied cases. And many liens are filed by providers who are under indictment or have been convicted. Existing law offers a means to stay those liens or suspend providers, but either require a formal prosecution or affect only a narrow set of liens. But Medicaid policy suspends payments even when there is an investigation of a credible fraud. So Rand recommends the use of payment suspension policy adopted by Medicaid as a tool in addition to those already available under the Labor Code. To accomplish these recommendations, RAND recommends that the DIR implement a centralized and permanent workers' compensation fraud data unit to enhance opportunities for detecting and addressing fraud. The Division of Workers' Compensation reminded lien claimants that they are required to file a declaration for any lien filed between January 1 and 2013 and December 31, 2016, for which a filing fee was paid. The Labor Code gave lien claimants until July 1 to comply with this new law. Senate Bill 1160, which became effective January 1, requires these lien claimants to file the Supplemental Lien Form and 4903.05c Declaration Form. These requirements were part of reform measures to combat fraud in the workers' comp system. To comply with these requirements, the DWC made available an e-form declaration and the WCAB promulgated regulations requiring the use of this form by e-filers and jet filers. Lien claimants who fail to comply by the deadline will have their liens dismissed. As with any other court document, the DWC says that the declaration must be served on the parties in the case. The DWC will review filed declarations for compliance with the legislation and will be holding hearings to determine whether the declarations are accurate and comply with the Labor Code. 
and the filing of a false declaration is also grounds for dismissal of a lien. The DWC has posted frequently asked questions on the use of the new form, which can be found on the DWC website. Earlier this year, some of the lien claimants failed in their efforts to have the new law declared unconstitutional. In the case filed by the California Workers' Compensation Interpreters Association, the petition for writ of mandate was denied by the Court of Appeal. The interpreters unsuccessfully argued that they do not neatly fit into any of the seven categories and that the only one of the new law that mentions interpreters is limited to interpretations during medical legal events. But nothing is said in the new law about interpreting during treatment events. But the Court of Appeal denied the petition in a terse docket entry that essentially concluded the case was premature since it assumed events in the future that had not yet happened at the WCAB. It remains to be seen if this was their final or their first in a series of efforts to pursue this theory in response to SB 1160. The Workers' Compensation Ethics Advisory Committee is a state committee independent of the DWC. It is charged with reviewing and monitoring complaints of misconduct filed against workers' compensation administrative law judges. According to its 2016 annual report, the committee considered a total of 39 of the new 44 complaints it received, in addition to six complaints pending from the prior year. A large proportion of the complaints alleged legal error not involving judicial misconduct or expressed dissatisfaction with the judge's decision. But the EAC identified six complaints resulting in judicial misconduct for which they recommended further action. In one case, an applicant attorney alleged having raised the right to call the defense attorney as a hostile witness under Evidence Code Section 776. But the judge noted in the minutes of the hearing the view that the complainant's argument was silly. The applicant's attorney complained that this comment was made in front of all of the witnesses. After the complainant told the judge about having won a few cases the same way, the judge indicated, quote, good for you, but it's not going to be the case with this judge, end quote. After the applicant's attorney indicated that a petition for removal could be filed, the judge replied, Go ahead, I have friends on the recon unit. The complainant also alleged that the judge gave legal advice to the complainant's client, undermining the complainant's competency and professionalism. Following its review of the investigation, the committee identified violations in this case of Canons 1, 2, and 3 of the Code of Judicial Ethics, and recommended that further appropriate action be taken. And in another case, an anonymous complainant alleged that the judge failed to respect and comply with the law and failed to act in a manner that promotes public confidence. The complainant alleged that the judge had a reputation for issuing notices, orders, and reports on reconsideration or removal that contained substantially false and misleading statements of facts. To support this, the complainant attached a WCAB panel decision reversing the judge that pointed this out. 
Following its review of the investigation, the committee identified violations of Canons 1, 2, and 3 of the Code of Judicial Ethics and recommended to that further appropriate action be taken against this judge as well. Proposed California Senate Bill 562 would substantially remake the health care system by eliminating health care insurance companies. The legislation would create a single-payer health care system, provide health insurance to all California residents, regardless of immigration status, and allow state regulators to negotiate drug costs with the pharmaceutical industry. But Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon put the brakes on a sweeping plan to overhaul the health care market, calling the bill woefully incomplete. Rendon announced plans to park the bill to create a government-run universal health care system and Assembly Rules Committee until further notice. This will give senators time to fill in holes that the bill does not currently address. Even the senators who voted for the Senate bill noted there are potentially fatal flaws in the bill and the authors acknowledged the bill was dead for the year. A legislative analysis pegged the cost of the proposed law at $400 billion. The abrupt announcement shields members of the Assembly from having to take a difficult vote that could be used against them by critics or supporters of the policy. The decision serves a major blow to the California Nurses Association, a vocal supporter of the law. But advocates warn that this action does not mean that SB 562 is dead, since this is a two-year legislative session. The health care debate also has flared up in the governor's race. Former Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa compared unfunded health care promises to snake oil, and not so veiled below it rival Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, who has pledged to support a universal health care system if elected governor. And in medical news, a new interstate opioid use study shows decreases in the amount and frequency of opioid drugs prescribed to injured employees covered by workers' compensation in several states. However, The Research Institute study also found other patterns of high-risk drug use in other states during the same time period. This study examined 26 states' workers' compensation systems, which covered more than 430,000 non-surgical work comp claims and about 2.3 million prescriptions connected with those claims. The study found that New York, Michigan, Kentucky, and Maryland had the highest reduction in opioid use among the states and decreases in opioid prescriptions in most of the 26 states it studied. New York, Pennsylvania, and Louisiana had the highest number of opioid claims among the 26 states, although New York did see substantial decreases. But opioid addiction from painkillers reportedly has reached epidemic heights. This report serves as a tool to monitor changes in opioid utilization as states implement reforms addressing opioid prescribing and dispensing. But at the same time, according to a May 2017 Quest Diagnostic Study, more U.S. workers are testing positive for drug use. In fact, the study shows addiction to cocaine, marijuana, and methamphetamines is at a 12-year high. 
the positivity rate in urine testing for cocaine increased for the fourth consecutive year in the general U.S. workforce and for the second consecutive year in the federally mandated safety-sensitive workforce. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Lloyd's Garen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.